Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is episode 84 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Craig Coleman. He is an associate professor at Marshall University and chair of graduate admissions in the Department of Communication Disorders. Craig is board certified specialist in fluency disorders and an ASHA fellow. Yes, I said fluency. I know this is a swallowing podcast, but I promise there's a point to bringing Craig on. (laughs) He teaches graduate courses in stuttering and professional issues in speech language pathology, the undergraduate capstone course, and an undergraduate course in stuttering. Prior to joining the Marshall faculty, Craig spent over 12 years serving as clinical coordinator and co-director of the Stuttering Center at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Craig has served as coordinator of ASHA Special Interest Group 4, which is Fluency and Fluency Disorders. Craig is a former two-term president of the Pennsylvania Speech-Language Hearing Association. In 2011, Craig was awarded the Clinical Achievement Award of the Pennsylvania State Association and was awarded honors of PISHA in 2015. Craig collaborated on the child versions of the overall assessment of the child's experience of stuttering, which assesses the effective and cognitive components of stuttering. Craig received his bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Pittsburgh, and I hope you guys love this episode because I really, truly did. (laughs) Hello, Craig. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I think, so this is a little bit different episode of what anyone is used to that listens to this podcast, because I'll just say it now, you are not a swallowing guy. I am not. Um, (laughs) But um, I think you're going to serve a big purpose to everybody listening, uh, because you have a unique perspective in that you're running for this ASHA position that I'll let you tell a little bit about yourself more. But we all have a lot of things that we want to get done, and we wish we had more ASHA support and Honestly, we don't really know how to even get that or who the right people are. So I'm glad that you're going to be here to answer some of these questions for us so that we can help move our profession in the right direction. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. So tell the people who you are first. Okay. So uh, my name is Craig Coleman. Uh, I'm an associate professor at Marshall University in West Virginia. As you said, I'm not a swallowing guy. Um, I'm (laughs) I'm a stuttering guy. (laughs) So that's kind of my area of expertise. I'm a board certified specialist in stuttering. Um, I've had that for, gosh, about 15 years now. I'm an ASHA fellow. I've I've done a lot with ASHA in terms of um, different committees. I served on the um, Committee to Revise the Scope of Practice in 2016. I've also been the uh, coordinator of ASHA SIG4, which is the Stuttering Special Interest Group. Served on the Legislative Council for ASHA when there was a Legislative Council. I was on the uh, Scientific and Professional Education Board, and um, I also served two pr- terms as president of the Pennsylvania Speech-Language Hearing Association when I was in Pennsylvania. Okay, so I think that's where you threw me because I thought you were a pit guy. I am, but you're in what? You're in you're at Marshall. I am. I've been in Marshall for seven years now. I graduated okay. from Pitt with both my undergrad and master's degree, um, and then I worked at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh for twelve years after that, and um, ran our stuttering center there, and then uh, took this position seven years ago. Cool. Okay. 
So do you live in PA or do you live no, in West Virginia? No, I live in West Virginia. So Marshall is oh, right okay. on the border between uh, kind of like at the end of West Virginia on the southwest end and then the border between Kentucky and Ohio. So it's about oh, okay. three hours to the Pennsylvania border. Oh, okay. I don't know why I thought it like I thought I was thinking it was West Virginia, Ohio, PA. I was thinking that uh, was that's the... that's WVU. That's where Morgan Morgantown up there, West Virginia. Ah, okay. That's why I'm, I'm don't know anything about <laughs> geography. Okay, thanks, Craig. All right, so so tell us more specifically why you're here today. What are you running for? Why should why do we want to talk with you? Well, I'm running for. Um... <laughs> The uh, ASHA vice president of planning position, which is a position that oversees the strategic plan, also works closely with the uh, multicultural board and international affairs and also closely with the special interest groups. So, you know, I'm I'm just hoping that you can kind of give me some ideas about what your listeners might feel is important to them so that um, as the campaign and election moves forward, I have a good idea of what that might look like. And so that, you know, if I do get elected, I can represent the needs of of your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess to kind of start with that, we are all medical speech pathologists, and most of us are kind of bound by this red tape of Medicare and billing and right. guidelines of that. And I think that's where a lot of our issues come from is we're supposed to have these tools to do our jobs. But a lot of the facilities claim that they don't have the budgets to give us these tools to do our jobs. So I know one of the big things that is constantly brought up is why doesn't why doesn't ASHA say like we have to have these tools to do our jobs or why doesn't ASHA say we have to have access to instrumentation in order to do our jobs? Right. So I don't know if you can speak to the direction of that. So, you know, I'll kind of paint this from a little bit of a a broader answer, because um, one of the things I learned in my two terms as president of the Pennsylvania Speech and Hearing Association, we were in a licensure battle at the time. And so we were, you know, advocating for new licensure law. And uh, there were several reasons for that. Uh, Number one, ours was very outdated. And, you know, this goes back to what would be the interest of a lot of your listeners. SLPs in Pennsylvania were not even allowed to do scopes yes, because it was the, the law was so outdated. And so that was one of the issues that we were, you know, advocating for. And uh, we were also advocating for change with the Department of Education, where they weren't really even requiring a master's degree for people to practice as speech pathologists in the schools. And we said, well, you kind of have to do that. And, you know, in a lot of discussion with a lot of stakeholders, there was one phrase that kept coming up over and over again, and that was, we don't really care what ASHA says. <laughs> Whether it was the Department of Ed, it was the otolaryngologist, it was, you know, I mean, that, that was a, a really big thing. And so I learned quickly, you couldn't come to the table and say, well, this is what ASHA says. What you could do, though, is utilize the resources that ASHA has available and bring them to the table and not tell people that's what ASHA says, but still advocate for what ASHA says and kind of have them working more on the backside than on the front side. Because a lot of, you know, bureaucracy, whether it's administration of hospitals, Department of Education, um, you know, otolaryngology groups, they don't like to be told what to do by outside groups. And so if you come to the table and you say, well, this is what my professional organization says, the first response you're going to get is, is your professional organization going to pay for it? Oh, yeah. And the answer to that, of course, is no. So, you know, what, what you really have to do in those situations is, and this is where I think 
ASHA could be doing a little bit better job. I think they have to work very closely with the state associations because that's where a lot of meaningful change can happen because things can be written into a law in, at the state level a lot more easily that way if there is close collaboration. And what happens at the state law level really reflects what is going to happen in day-to-day -day practice because licensure law trumps everything. Yeah. So that, that, yeah. that's kind of a long answer. Yeah, no, no, that, that's okay. And, and, and kind of to counter that point, what I've run into sometimes is, you know, we will advocate for things and people have said, well, why doesn't your own professional organization have yeah. that as a guideline or why doesn't your own professional organization endorse that? And it's like, well, you got me. I don't know. Yeah. Can you get, can you give me an example of, of what one of those things may be? Um, yeah. So like the, the huge thing for us is, is making sure that we have instrumentation for all of our patients. Right. So whether they get a video fluoroscopy or whether they get a fees um, before right. we start seeing them for therapy. So, you know, the, the interesting conversation I had last year at the ASHA convention with, you know, somebody at ASHA was I just said, there used to be a, there used to be a, like a handout. It was like a knowledge and skills, like something about why we need access to instrumentation. And it was a, a handout that I used to give to like all the administrators at our facilities yeah. and they thought it was wonderful. And I said, this, this document literally does not exist on ASHA anymore. And she said, oh yeah, you know, we actually had a committee that all got together and decided this document was no longer necessary or needed. And I said, did anybody even ask any of us that work in the field? Because this document, people are looking for it. Right. And she's like, well, I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, hypothetically, what was supposed to happen was, and I and I served on the committee for the practice portal in, in stuttering. So I kind of went through this process that all of those documents, the, the technical guidelines, the knowledge and skills yep. were supposed to be yep. replaced by the practice portal. And the practice portal was supposed to include documentation that all of those things had before and more. However, what you really found was that that really depended a lot on how many fighters you had on the practice portal committee in terms of getting some of the right information in there. Because, you know, I, I know the experience we had in stuttering is, you know, we, we put together the content and then it went through the national office and what, what came back to us was not nearly the same as what we yeah. put out. Yeah. And yeah. they said, well, this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to put out. And we said, no, you're not. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and it turned into about a, a six month battle with, you know, actually having to have meetings in person. And I remember doing a conference call the day before Christmas one year because it, it was so intense. And at the end of the day, it turned out well and, and you know, it, it ended up the right way. But if you didn't have a group that, that advocated strongly for that, I could see yeah, how that... It seems like for dysphagia, it wasn't because yeah. she said, oh, well, you know, nobody spoke up about it. Just this is what was decided. And I was like, well, who, like, who decided this? Like anybody yeah. that's out in the field working, like in the trenches, seeing patients would know, heck no, like we need these. Right, right. So, yeah. And you know, that's something I would definitely bring to the attention of your special interest group if they don't already know about it, because um, the way the practice portal works is every three years, those are supposed to go under review. And okay. so when they go under review, that should be the time to change it, to include that information that you need. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got nothing but positive things to say about the practice portal. I think it's fantastic. It's just a lot of those old key documents are not there, yeah. which stinks. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely could see how that, that would be an issue. And I, I definitely would work with the SIG to make sure that those get included back in what you need to move forward. Okay, cool. 
All right. Um, let's talk a second about, you know, I know this is really a hot topic. I'm sure it's not an easy answer, mm-hmm. but I think what's interesting is that you're not a PhD. Right. Correct. And I think there's this pull of, uh, we know there's this pull of, sometimes it's just these PhDs get elected to these positions, or right. that's part of their job title is that they will be of service in ASHA and things like that. So it seems like a lot of these positions are held by PhDs, which is all good and wonderful, but we need this beautiful balance of right. researchers and clinicians. And I don't know how we can get more clinicians involved in ASHA and how we get ASHA to accept more clinicians. Right. So I think it's a two-way street. You know, it's, it, it is a really interesting discussion. And I think we need to really stop looking at the letters after people's names and really start looking at what people bring to the table. I, I know sometimes there's a concerted effort to do that. I know even within our SIG when I was the coordinator, you know, we talked a lot about that, that you know, we, we can't have a coordinating committee made up of only people from academia. Yeah, we, we need yeah. to have people that are in the trenches, and we really tried to recruit people to run for those positions in the trenches. You know, the the difficult part I think is that when you have somebody who's in clinical practice, a lot of times they would bring a lot to the table, but they don't have the support from their administrators or, or whoever's in charge of of their department to do it because it takes away from them seeing patients. Yeah, and um, that's something that I think we really have to work harder to push is to make sure that, that we are getting a, a balance of people. And, and I'm going to go one step further and say not just for these positions, but I'm going to say even in academia, we need to do a better job of that. Absolutely. There are excellent clinicians that make excellent teachers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we need to stop looking at just what letters do you have after your name? And, and, you know, I, I, and I'm not, you know, disparaging PhDs by saying that because I I think that, you know, there's, there's certainly clearly a need for PhDs in our field and, and kind of a a, a desperate one at that. But, you know, a, a lot of times people are trained in those positions to be researchers and that's very different than being in a leadership position from a national organization. It's very different from being a good teacher. And so, you know, we need to make sure that we're putting people in the positions where they excel and have the skills rather than what letters do they have after their name. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Do you know, Craig, is there like, is it just our beliefs or is there really some positions that are only for PhDs, are only for clinicians or does it not matter? Like I know one time, like I applied for a position with in, in ASHA a few years ago and the response I was given, well, this is only for a PhD researcher. What, and I was like, what, what position was it? I honestly can't remember which I'd have to go back and look it up specifically. And it was a volunteer position? Yeah. See, I, I, I don't personally think that response should ever be given because. Yeah. And I was like, did I miss that somewhere? Like I went back and read and I'm like, I, I could have swore I wouldn't have applied if I knew it was only for a PhD. Like I feel like I missed that somewhere, but I was just shocked that that was the response that was given. You know, so. knowing what your background is and, you know, I, I, I kind of see you similar to the background that I've had. I mean, you know, you've done a lot of stuff in the field and there's a lot of people out there like us. Yeah. You know, you, you've done a lot of stuff in the field. You've probably had as many presentations and or publications as somebody who has a PhD. And when you have that, people should look at that and look at your CV or your resume rather than, again, what letters do you have after your name? 
be, yeah. because you know there there are people out there with a master's degree. I mean, you know, if if you're talking about comparing comparing CVs, I would put mine up against anybody who has a PhD in terms of number of publications and presentations because it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, you can yeah. become very good at something without having you know that background but and you know the other thing is that there are there are also phds who are wonderful clinicians right and you know right. make would be excellent in leadership positions in clinical practice but they almost get persuaded not to do that because it's sort of like well you got a phd you know you shouldn't be doing clinical practice but we need that too right right yeah i don't know craig i don't know well i'm glad you i'm glad you're running for this position so <laughs> So let's let's switch gears. I, I kind of want to ask you. I was talking about this off the air. So basically, how how do we as clinicians get change done in ASHA? Like we want to advocate for something. We need ASHA support. How does that look? Like what is the chain of command? What is the the formal? I guess what is the etiquette for doing something like that? You know, I know it's not making a post on Facebook and praying that somebody sees it. And right, you know, it is not. I, I, <laughs> So, you know, I look at ASHA advocacy in terms of like how you advocate to ASHA. Uh, and, and, you know, the, you'll get people that say we are ASHA and we are ASHA, but ASHA is also like any other governing body where there's some levels of bureaucracy and, and you have to know how to navigate them. And, you know, having had a number of different positions with ASHA over the years, I feel like that's one strength that I bring to the table with this position is I've, I've kind of learned how to navigate that bureaucracy to some degree. And, and I think, you know, it's almost like any other bureaucracy where you have to do it on a grassroots level. And, you know, I, I was told by a lobbyist one time in Pennsylvania, and it's a really good lesson. He said, you know, if you want something done with a legislator, you don't have you don't write one letter and have 500 people sign it. You have 500 people send a letter because yeah. they, they keep having to deal with it then. Or you have 500 people call. If it's one letter signed by 500 people, it's one letter and they throw it away. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the more people you can have to make direct contact with somebody at ASHA, whether it's a board of directors person, and that's really where I would operate because then the board of directors can be the one to take that to the national office staff. Um, okay. I think sometimes things, you know, kind of die a little bit when it goes right to the national office staff because there's there's issues of like what's the procedure for bringing that forward, and, and that really should come probably through the board of directors first because they're the volunteer leaders who are elected. The other thing I've learned is that you know you have to find the right person. Um, yeah. So, and I'll give you an example of this. Last year, around the time that um, there was a teacher strike in West Virginia. And um, Asha put out a statement saying, you know, like it, it was very kind of watered down and it was very much like, like, be careful you don't get caught in client abandonment where you're abandoning your clients and violating the code of ethics. And to me, that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And, yeah, and, totally. and I read it and I said, you know, this is a really good opportunity to support your people in the field and, and the membership. And that's not at all what client abandonment is. Yeah. And and so I wrote an e uh, you know I sat down and I, I I wrote an email to the person who was I think at the time maybe the director of schools school based services um, I copied several people at ASHA the staff that I knew I copied people on the board of directors and I just said you know you guys are missing an amazing opportunity here to to stand up for the people in the state and 
you're, you're painting it as, well, you may be violating the code of ethics if you go on strike. Like, you know, if, if you tell somebody you're not going to be there, all you have to do is basically put a flyer in somebody's book and say, hey, you can get services somewhere else while we're on strike. That's not client abandonment anymore. Yeah, right. And so to threaten people with that, I said, this is not, this is not appropriate, number one. It's, not, like it's, it's written by somebody who clearly do- doesn't understand what client abandonment is. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're missing an opportunity. And then I, I, I didn't hear back from anybody. And then I will say a week later, they completely changed their statement. Oh. And yeah. it was much more supportive of the school-based SLPs. I know a okay. similar issue happened last year when they kind of issued a, a wishy-washy statement about whether or not teachers should have guns in schools. Yeah. And a lot of people kind of felt like they should be issuing a statement on behalf of the school-based personnel saying that they didn't really want that because the large percentage said they didn't. Um, and so about a week later, again, they came out with a stronger statement. So I, I do think that they, they do listen at times, but I, I think they have to hear from enough people. Gotcha. Yeah. Because I there was an instance last year where a, a large amount of people sent in a letter basically about, you know, why we aren't getting more support from ASHA about getting access to instrumentation. And, you know, there's just, I mean, there's nauseating amount of research that we really can't do our jobs without knowing what's going on with the swallow without instrumentation. Right. And I, there was thousands of us that wrote this letter and it was just a generic letter was sent back to all of us saying, thanks, but no thanks, basically. So what, what specifically was, did, did the letter seek from ASHA to do? Basically to, to put out maybe like a position statement or something saying that, yes, instrumentation is needed before, you know, in order to treat your patient appropriately. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening is, you know, we're going into these facilities and administrators will say, you know, we don't have the funds for that or which is interesting because a lot of facilities find the funds for that, you know, and they'll say, well, ASHA doesn't say anything about it. So, you know, if your own governing body doesn't say anything about it, how are we supposed to support it? And and what was their rationale for not wanting to do that? There wasn't one. It was just a really, I think, a very, the, the response made me angry because it seemed like they I don't even know that they read the letter, to be honest. Like it, it seemed that like uninvested, right. basically. Yeah. I mean, did that do you know if that went through your SIG first? I don't know, to be honest. See, again, I think that's probably the place to start okay. because there, if it goes through the SIG, then the SIG has a liaison with the national office staff. Okay. At the SIG meetings, there's usually five or six people who are on the coordinating committee and one national office staff member. So if if like you have a unanimous agreement between the six people on the coordinating committee, they're gonna the national office staff is gonna have a tough time overriding that. Okay. So, you know, I mean, again, I've lived those experiences with various issues in stuttering. And I, I think that's where we've had our most success is to go through the SIG first. Yeah. And because I, I honestly don't see a downside of that. I mean, I, I don't see why they would not want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for clearing that up, because I, I think that's the issue is that a lot of us want to start some grassroots change, but don't even know where to start. And then it's like we're not even listened to. But again, right. not sure we took the appropriate channels. You so. know, if, if if I get elected to this position, I would really like you to send me a copy of that letter. I would love to, Craig. And then we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that's really, I think what everyone wanted was maybe to just be heard. And, you know, it was kind of just the chatter between everybody was like, well, how great would it be if we could just sit down with Ash and 
and explain our, you know, plight and explain our argument and see what they have to say. But like, it wasn't even, wasn't even entertained. It was just thanks for no thanks, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And I think that's where everyone was so frustrated because this is like a, a everyday issue that we face in our right, jobs. Right. Yeah. The response should not be that. Yeah. So, well, thank you, Craig. <laughs> All right. Well, where should we go from here? What, um, I think those were my big, my big chirping points. Okay. Uh, yeah. Whatever direction you want to go is fine with me. If there's anything else you want to, you know, talk about that's a, an important issue or anything that you feel like your, your listeners would want to know about. Yeah. I mean, I guess if someone like me were to want to try to affect change in ASHA, what are the types of positions that are open or like, where would we even go to see what's available or something that we could do basically. So um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, and again, I, I know I kind of sound like I'm beating a dead horse with this, but I, I found over the years that probably the most successful way to get change was to get yourself on a committee. Whether for me that was the scope of practice, it was the scientific and professional education board, it was, you know, the SIG coordinator. ASHA has a volunteer form where you can go in, you could fill out, you know, what positions you might be interested in on different committees. I honestly think that's the, the best way to, to go about affecting change is to get yourself into one of the positions because number one, you learn how the system works. Yeah and, yeah. and you start to make personal contacts with people that you know who you can go to to affect change quicker. And I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do think, you know, the, the SIGs provide such a good opportunity for that because, you know, there, there's meetings a couple times a year that your SIG coordinating committee has, but then your SIG coordinator also meets a couple times a year with the other SIG coordinators. And that's really where a lot of things can be changed. Like if you have 14 coordinators coming to a meeting saying, hey, all of our membership wants and needs this, that's pretty powerful. That's honestly how we got perspectives changed from a newsletter to a peer-reviewed status. Awesome. You know, we, we, we sat there and I was the coordinator of our SIG at, time, at the time. We had a, uh, a large meeting at the national office with all the coordinators and all the editors of perspectives. And I had been coordinator, I think, for like two years at that point. And, you know, I kind of had gotten tired of the discussion because all I kept hearing was perspectives is peer reviewed. It should be considered peer reviewed. And, you know, then I would hear the national office staff say, well, you know, somebody has to write a resolution and then it has to be approved and this and that. So I went back to my hotel that night and I wrote a resolution. There you go. And I came back the next day and I said, <laughs> okay, here's your resolution. I love it, Greg. And they, yeah. they said, whoa, well, this is really quick. I said, well, hey, listen, I said, I'm not going to sit here yeah. for another two years and have the same discussion because, you know, yeah. otherwise we're going to, we, we could be spending today talking about the resolution and how to move it forward. Or we could be spending eight hours today talking about how it should be peer reviewed, but it's not. Yeah. So what's, which one's going to be more productive? So I love it. We went through that process and then within about, you know, we, we worked, talked about it a lot that day of how to move it forward. I uh, got the national office staff on board, went to the board of directors, and six months later, the change was made. Excellent. So, so it's not rocket science. It, it's not. I mean, you, you know, there, <laughs> but, but you have to be persistent. And I, I've yeah, learned that yeah. over the years that if you give up on something right away, you're not going to get what you want. Yeah. Excellent. 
Can you talk a little bit more kind of about the structure of the SIGs? Because I'm hearing you loud and clear now that there is a lot more that can be done at that level. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just, I'm involved in, in SIG 13. I, I think I even joined SIG 15 this year too, which is the geriatric one. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions about like, who runs the SIG? Is it a researcher? Is it somebody at ASHA? Like, it's it's really gray as to, I guess, who really has ownership and who's involved in this. So every SIG has their own coordinator. And okay. so each year, every SIG will have elections to elect members who, and anybody can volunteer to run for a SIG. Any member of the SIG can volunteer to run for the coordinating committee of that SIG. And so, you know, the coordinating committee has, you know, I think five people on it. And then basically the coordinating committee within itself elects a coordinator and associate coordinator. So those terms are three years. So like for me, I was on the SIG as just a general member for, I think, two years. And then I became the associate coordinator for after that I was elected to coordinator, which is a new three-year term. So I actually served six years on the coordinating committee with that new three-year term. So the coordinating committee itself elects the coordinator and the coordinator is really the leader of the SIG. You you have a, a, a liaison that you work with, with the national office staff, but, but the coordinator is really the leader. Okay. And I guess, so my question is, I think what rubs me the wrong way about the SIG sometimes is that it seems to be used as just a place for advertising. <laughs> and I think, yeah. And and like I, yes, I own lots of businesses. Right. I've never, I don't put my stuff on SIG because I understand the rules, right? Right. A lot of people don't. And I think there's a gray area between like, well, who's supposed to be policing this then? You know, I think that's when it's lost some of its credibility because people are like, I'm not even getting on there because it's just people spamming their companies. 100% you know, and, agree with you, Teresa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, like, who are we supposed to go to when it's like, I'm not even sure these people are seeing all this nonsense that's going on. They you know, are. Is it the coordinate? Okay. All right. Okay. I- <laughs> Uh, So I'll tell you a bit of experience I've had with this, and it's on two levels. One is that we had a lot of pressure every year to accept sponsorships for the SIG lunch at the ASHA convention. Okay. And every year they would kind of come to us and say, you know, from a budget standpoint, it would make sense for you to accept this and, and do it. And every year I said no, because you never know who you're going to get. Right. And so I kept it as our policy for the time I was coordinator that we did not accept any donations for that because you could get some very reputable people and companies who were, you know, submitting and then you could have Joe Smith who claims to be able to cure stuttering with some kind of magic yep. potion. And, yep. uh, you know, if you put that on your brand, now all of a sudden it looks like Ash is endorsing it. Yeah. And um, so I just said, no, we're, we're not doing that. And we, we never did. Now, There were two other issues. We we had cases where all of a sudden, and I'm sure you've had the same thing within your SIG, there started to be advertisements that would pop up at the bottom of messages in the forum Mm -hmm. for people's book. And and, we had one at one time that was a little bit suspect in terms of the materials. And I went to the office staff and I said, why is this coming up? Yeah. And they said, well, it's because they bought advertising space. And I said, yeah. yeah, but this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, like, it, yeah. This is not reputable. It's like, you know, if you, if you go to this website and 
read it. They claim basically to be able to cure stuttering and yeah. there's not a speech language pathologist on their staff. Well, and that's, that's something that I'm, I deal with a lot is like, I get these companies that'll come to me and want to sponsor the podcast. And there's one company specifically, there is no research to support this. Yeah. None whatsoever. I've talked to several researchers, several people about it, nothing to support it. Yet it's, always up as a sponsor on SIG 13 right, and right. it drives me bananas. Yeah. So. You know, it's, it's funny because the, the, it, the position they take on that is largely, it's just like the actual leader where it's just advertising. Yeah. You ignore it if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I get that to a certain degree because, you know, on, on the other side of that, that kind of allows the membership dues not to be raised. Cause I think it's been like 12 years or something since the dues were raised. I think I, my my perspective, I'd rather pay more and know that the people with, that are coming to with me you. with products are evidence based. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think a lot of people would feel that way. Yeah, I'm not sure the majority would. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sometimes out of my own little island. Yeah, I know. So we yeah, are, here I we're am. <laughs> island. But but the other issue that we had was um, as far as that goes is we, we had people within the forum like when they were answering questions that would promote their own. Yeah. books or materials. And we, again, we went to the national office and we said, what are you going to do about this? And yeah. they said, well, you know, they're answering the question and blah, blah, blah. And it, it kept being the same person over and over again. And eventually they did say something to her and tell her she yeah. had to stop yeah. doing that. But we really took action as the coordinating committee before they did. And what one of us would do is that we would just like ask a question. Like we would just say, can you be more specific on how your product would help answer this question? Yeah. And they would never be able to respond to that. Yeah. And so yeah. like when people see that, they say, oh, okay, well, this person is just trying to push their, their product. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there, there are ways to handle it both informally and formally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, like, I struggle with that so much because I am a business person. Yeah. Like I, I'm actually, I'm a speech pathologist who worked as a speech pathologist for seven years before realizing all these issues that I could solve by creating a business. So I understand right the inner workings of both, but there's a time and a place for both. Yeah, absolutely. Like there, are, there are places that I know I am 100% clinician and I do not mention a single business. Right. And then I know there's places that I spend lots of marketing money and I am CEO Teresa and I, you know, right. I'm a, I'm a speech pathologist on the side, right. but like it's two separate worlds to me. And I think that's where a lot of frustration occurs because it's like Ash is endorsing all this evidence-based practice yet these companies that are not really well, having well, any evidence to support it are being shoved down our throats. So the same thing happens at the convention. I mean, you go to yeah, an exhibit yeah. hall and I mean, some of the stuff you see there, you're just like, wow, yeah, yeah, <laughs> all yeah. this person has is a big checkbook. Yeah. 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 I, I know. Like I, I'm not, I don't like rules. I don't like government involvement with like a lot of things, but like some of this stuff is, I feel like common sense, like I think we should have a little more censorship. Though. Well, my, my concern always with it is it's not for like, you know, it's not for you and swallowing. It's not for me and stuttering. It's for the person who's new and yeah. doesn't have a lot of experience and just sees the money put behind some of this stuff and says, oh, this must work. Absolutely. And they don't know yeah. enough yet at that point to, to be able to discern whether or not it works or not. They just see, well, Ash is promoting it, so it must work. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's the concern I always have with those things. It's not the people who have you know a lot of experience because they're going to look at it and hit the delete button and move on. Right. Right. It's, it's right. the people who are, are new and, and you know a little bit more vulnerable to that. 
Absolutely. I, th- I get those kind of questions all the time. Like, oh, I was given a free sample of this. What do you think of it? And I'm like, have you like looked at any of the research? Because there is none. Right. You know, and it's like, oh, well, I've worked in the schools for 20 years. I'm just hopping over to the medical side, you know, and that's obviously a whole nother issue. But it's like, ah, no. like. <laughs> well, you know, I had a situation once where somebody was doing that and stuttering where they were promoting their book for everything. And um, and I had kind of called them out on it. And the, the person responded by saying, oh, you know, if I just send you my book and you read it, I'm sure you'll feel differently. So they, yeah. they did. And I looked at it and I, I wrote them back and I said, you know, there, there's not one reference in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the whole book, yeah. there's not one reference and this is all your yeah. opinions. Yeah. And so, yeah. no, I don't, I actually feel a little bit stronger now after reading the book than I did before. Good. Yeah. Good, Craig. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what the answer is for that. I, you know, I don't know if more censorship is the answer or not, because obviously I know Asha needs sponsor dollars to run and yeah, it's a, it's a fine line. It is. It's, <laughs> it's a fine line, but you know, my, my my thing is always, okay, so, and I've said this for years now, and something I'll probably really go after if I get elected to this position, for years, Asha has said, if you're doing a talker presentation, you have to have all of these disclosures about every yeah. possible association you could have to yes. anything you're talking about. As a newly CE, as a new CEU provider, I am like, I, I cry every time I have to go through that section because I'm like, oh, did I do it right? But but my question is, where is that for all the people doing advertising? Like, where's the disclaimer saying, hey, I paid a lot of money for this, but really, this is that's all I did. Huh? 100%. I mean, and, and yeah. that needs to be attached to everything that, that is put out there from that standpoint, that what yeah. the relationship yeah. is. I would even like to know how much money they're paying for some of that because it, it says a lot. Like, you know, I mean, if if, if I'm paying $800 for an ad in, a, in an email forum, well, then I've got a lot of money and this is worth a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and I think on the contrary, I think on the flip side, I, I, once I do find out more of some, like more about some of these companies, it's like, there's one company that I didn't realize was started by someone that has been an SLP for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And then also a physician that was a partner, was a physician for 20 years. They had so much evidence to support this thing. And it's like, this is the stuff that should be shouted from the rooftops, right? but like, isn't, you know, so I, I'm all about like full disclosure, you know, and I think it can help to get rid of some of the scams, but it also can help to promote some of these companies that really do have good evidence to support it. But just a lot of these people are SLPs are not marketing people. Like, <laughs> Well, the thing is, too, if you do something like that, that you will get people who have a stronger evidence base behind what they're promoting or not even so much an evidence base. All I want is a rationale. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, because sometimes yeah. there, there's not an evidence base for some of the stuff that we already do, and that's okay. I mean, if it makes sense, right, if there's right. good rationale for it, and it's it's theoretical. But you know, I think requiring that would make people that have some credibility more likely to push forward, and people yeah. who don't have credibility to be scared off by it and say, uh, maybe this isn't the path I want to go down. Yeah. Yeah. But, I agree 100% with that. But if that. the only thing I need to do is open up my wallet and say, yeah. hey, I can print whatever I want if I just give you a check, there's no downside for me. Yep. I can pay $20,000 and have this big, beautiful thing in the middle of the ASHA convention and the world knows my name. And right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you, you look at, you know, the, the, the largest companies there that present at the convention every year. And there's not any evidence for a lot of the stuff that they're selling. And there's not right. even a rationale for a lot of the stuff that they're selling. Right. 
you can right. get most of those materials for free if you like open Google. Right, right. And print them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so. Well, good, Craig. I hope you tackle that beast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do feel strongly about the disclosures and what, what people need yeah. to attach to those ads. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 100%. I think that's fantastic. So, all right. Do you have any anything else you'd like to tell the people? or? Uh, I, I would just like to remind and encourage everyone to vote. Voting runs begins April 16th and runs through May 28th, I believe. You'll get an email from ASHA directly because the voting is electronic. It's amazing to me, but there's about 3 to 4% of ASHA members who actually vote every year. So let's see if we could shatter that number this year and, yeah, and, yeah. and really make a, a strong case and uh, have people's voices heard. Because I, I do think the only way you get your voice heard is to be active and to take part in elections and things like that. 100%. I think uh, one huge lesson I learned it just in business as I've started taking a lot of these business courses when I started my company was you need to go where the fish are. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that you've done incredibly well so far, Craig, is you are going to where all the SLPs are and saying, you know, these are the things I'm passionate about. This is how I want to help you out. And I think that's wonderful. I, I think a lot of times I open the ASHA elections thing and I'm like, I don't know who any of these people are. I don't know what they stand for. I don't know why I should vote for them. And I think that's a lot of the struggle. You know, yeah, part, you guys don't have like debates and things ahead of time. Well, like, I was just going to say part of that, I think, is just the structure <laughs> of the way it's run, because, you know, you, you get to make a 45 second audio clip saying why you want to run for that position and you get to write in like less than 150 words what your qualifications are for the position. And so in 45 seconds and 150 words, everybody looks the same. Yeah. Because yeah. it's the same soundbite pretty much. It's the same, you know, here are my experiences. These are the highlights of my CV. But, but I do think that there are, are meaningful differences between candidates, but nobody ever puts themselves out there enough to recognize what they're running for and what they stand for. And, you know, that, that's something that I kind of decided at the beginning of this process that, that I would do. And if I, if I won, great. If I lost, then I knew I, I put what I had into it. And, but but I, I really just want to make sure that people understand one of the big things that I want to accomplish is to advocate for SLPs. Yeah. Because I, I think, you know, whether it's caseloads, workloads, productivity issues, salary, public awareness of what we do, we're not getting any better at those things. And, right. and I understand there are other things like in the strategic plan that are very important. It's very important to increase, you know, diversity and to increase cultural competence. And it's very important to attract new members to the profession. But the problem with focusing on just those things is that people who are in the profession now are dying. <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. you know, you, you have people drowning in the schools who nobody's paying attention to. You have people yeah. in hospitals and medical settings who are being, you know, just asked to meet productivity standards that are putting pressure on them to see people that don't need to be seen at times. You're having people not getting the equipment that they need because of funding issues. And so we have to solve the problems first that the people who are already here here are having yeah. rather than looking down the road 10 miles and saying, you know, well, how can we, you know, create a brighter future in, in 15 years? We have to think about how do we keep people from getting burned out in the profession now and how do we advocate for making it better? Yep. Yep. 100%. I, I, I swore I was going to keep this podcast complete advertising free and everything. So I won't even mention it, but I, I have a group. And the one thing that's surprising to me is that people are constantly saying like, 
throughout this group, I've, I now have the courage. I did an in-service for my, you know, for my physician at the, at the hospital. Like, I can't believe I did this and stepped out of my comfort zone and advocated. And I feel so great. And it's like, these are, it seems like in the big scheme of things, these are such little things, but the fact that SLPs don't even feel empowered enough to go out and advocate for their own profession to our own colleagues is like, right. it like tears at my soul. Sometimes I'm like, what is going to happen that people don't even feel like they can advocate for their own profession. So I'm glad that it's getting out there and it's happening. And, and I think that's like one of my huge missions too, is just getting SLPs to realize how cool of a field this really is. Like I want SLPs to be really fulfilled in their career and know that, I mean, we do such cool stuff and we can help a lot of people get through some really life altering problems if they just had a little more belief in themselves and a little more support from their network. And those stories need to be told on a more public. I got a laundry list for you. (laughs) No, that's good because that's the thing that we need to do on a public scale to be able to to have people understand the importance of what we do. You know, so many of our public relations campaigns, I mean, you know, Several years ago, you had the earbuds campaign, which which is great. But you know, yeah. telling teenagers not to turn up their music is not a good way to increase public knowledge and awareness of what you do. It's, yeah. it's a way to be looked at as a drag. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you know, I mean, and and it's it's those kind of things where, but but you know, seeing seeing somebody who you know couldn't have a functional life before, but can now. There's so many stories of those in our field daily, and we don't get to tell them, right? Uh, you know, right. and and that would make a huge difference in the public understanding what we do. One hundred percent. Yeah, I know that's something I face constantly. I mean, I'm always talking to doctors. I'm always talking to other professions. They're like, I didn't even realize you guys did this stuff. Like, I think that's you know, I, I just did a big talk. I was an invited speaker in Georgia, and one of the things I talked about was just how we get frustrated that people don't listen to our recommendations right. and then come to find out it's because they didn't even know that we were capable of making these recommendations. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Awesome, Craig. Yeah, I think we co- we covered a lot there. All right. Well, thank you so much for everything. <laughs> we solved thank all you of for the your world's time. problems. We did all of it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Craig. This has been wonderful. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on and uh, I appreciate all your listeners uh, taking the time to listen to the podcast. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Teresa. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.